Amen. Well, if you would, uh, we'll now go before our good God in a corporate prayer of petition, uh, asking for God's favor on us and on our church. I'll lead us, and if you agree with what you hear this morning, as I close, would you, as a congregation, just join by verbally saying amen to what you hear, if you agree with what I say. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we come before you, and it is a privilege to bring our needs to you. Father, we pray this morning for our church. Father, as this week some of the ladies in our church begin studying Ephesians together, we pray that you would bless that Thursday morning study. As they study the new life that Christians have in Christ, and the new people that you are creating through the church, Father, would you shape our ladies and our church according to your word. Father, we pray that you would guide Leah Batchelor as she facilitates that study. Father, this reminds us to pray for women in our church this morning. We pray for moms of young children. We pray for Lauren Witt and Jamie Kelly. Father, we pray that you would help Lauren and Jamie to care well for the children in their home. We pray that you would help them this week to raise up their children faithfully, teaching them about the very nature of God by their actions. Father, we pray that you'd help Lauren and Jamie to be busy discipling their children and, and other women in our church this week, not neglecting to pursue others for spiritual growth. Father, we pray for moms of teenagers in our church. We pray specifically this morning for Kimmy Baker and Givay Piercefield. Father, help Kimmy and Givay love their teenage children well. Help them prepare and send off their young adults into the world, not trusting in their own ownership or control over their children, but trusting your sovereignty in the days ahead over their children. Father, help Kimmy and Givay to be busy discipling their children and other women this week, not neglecting to pursue others for spiritual growth. Father, we pray for all of us in this room uh, that we would honor you this week with our time. Father, with our witness, may we honor you. Father, we pray for members of First Boynton that we would be especially honoring to you in our use of social media. Father, in a contentious day, we pray that we would be especially mindful what we post online, that we would say things that would only give grace to those who read our posts and remembering that we'll give an account for every careless word that we type. Father, may we also be wise with our time online this week. Father, spare us from wasting your time on the internet. Father, we pray not just for our church, we pray for other churches. This morning, we're especially mindful of Basswood Church in Knoxville, Tennessee, where Caleb's father, Ronnie Batchelor, pastors. Father, we pray for Basswood as they've lost one of their lay elders this week in a sudden death. Father, we lament and we grieve with our sister church. We pray for our sister church that you would be near to them as they grieve. Father, we pray for Pastor Ronnie Batchelor that you would give him grace to lead well. Father, we pray that even this loss 
would redound in praise to your glory across Knoxville. Father, as we go to your word this morning, we ask that you would do nothing short of a miracle in us. That is, we pray that you would open our blind eyes, that you would sharpen our fuzzy vision, that you would clarify our misperceptions. Lord, we pray that we could see spiritually. We pray that your Holy Spirit would illumine your word to our eyes to see that things that we might otherwise miss and to apply to our hearts your word. Father, may we see Christ. May we turn our eyes upon Jesus this morning. We pray this in his name. Amen. Have you ever tried to see something and yet found yourself repeatedly missing the point? Over the new year, my family and I visited our extended family in Maryland and Pennsylvania. While we were there, we took a, a day together to go up to Philadelphia and to visit the Franklin Institute, which is a kid-friendly science museum. One of the exhibits was a set of optical illusions where you can, uh, perhaps you know this, you, you look at a vase and you can see two faces. One, or Sorry, you look at a picture and you either see a vase or two faces, uh, or you maybe look at a picture that's an outline, and it looks either like an old woman's face or a young woman's face, depending how you're looking at it. Now, uh, I hesitate to say this next part, uh, but uh, yeah, so let, let me, so there was one uh, display there, which I did scrutinize carefully, and I still found myself consistently missing the point. Uh, you, you read by the read the sign. It says, "Walk by this 3D image of this dragon. Uh, keep your head turned. Look at his nose. Uh, close one eye. I, I don't know. Do, do whatever, and you'll see it following you. Uh, you'll see it moving. It never worked. Uh, no matter how many times I walked back and forth in front of this said dragon, the 3D outline, I could never see what I was supposed to see." My wife saw the optical illusion. My children saw the optical illusion. I never saw it. For what it's worth, I think there's a small chance that my family and the museum were playing a prank on me. Uh, <clears throat> I wonder if you've ever felt that way, looking hard, yet finding yourself missing the point. This, in truth, is the sad situation that we find the Pharisees in this morning in this morning's text. Jesus has been giving no shortage of teachings and warnings to the religious leaders of his day throughout the book of Luke, and they still aren't getting it. If you brought your Bibles, open to Luke chapter 14, and grab your forks, we're going to dig in. Uh, we've been studying through the teachings of Christ, and today we come into a set of four passages where Jesus teaches the Pharisees as they share a meal together. So all of Jesus' illustrations share this theme of a meal. But the underlying theme in the context of these mere par meal parables that Jesus is about to teach is that these religious men kept missing the point. Notice even how this starts in verse 1. We read, One Sabbath... When they went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. So here's the idea. These men were scrutinizing Jesus. 
He's come to sit down for a meal, and they're watching him. The language is here is that they wanted to make sure they didn't miss anything. And yet, that's exactly what happened. Look at verse 2. Behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. Now, dropsy is just a medical condition of the, the swelling of the limbs, perhaps from a, a, a bodily fluids or an infection of some sort. Verse 3, and Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, is it lawful to hear on the Sabbath day or not? Verse 4, they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him on his way. And he said to them, which of you having a son or an ox has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Now, if you've been with us in the book of Luke, this scene should ring a bell for you. You see, just one chapter earlier, we saw a mirror image of this scene back in chapter 13. Both stories were nearly identical. Both were on the Sabbath. Both, uh, Jesus is interacting with a religious ruler. In both, Jesus heals a, a medical condition. Jesus even makes the same argument in both of these stories for why this isn't labor. And he goes back to the, the same principle in, in, in the Pharisaical law and, and argues that compassion should be part of the Sabbath day. And in both of them, again, the religious leader is, is silenced or is ashamed by Christ. So here's my question. Why? Why would Luke include these stories back to back? Why would Jesus heal in the same way, back to back? Why would Jesus teach the same lesson, even citing the same argument, back to back? Why the repetition? What's happening here? Here's what Luke is saying. No matter how many times I walked back and forth in front of the 3D dragon, I still kept missing it. No matter how many times Jesus will perform the same indisputable miracles and teach the very words of God, these men will keep missing the point. Even when they were watching Jesus carefully. And yet, notice Jesus is watching them. Did you see that down in verse 7? Now he told the parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor. So here's the picture. They're watching him, and he's watching them. But Jesus never misses the point. He gives them three parables. Let me offer three lessons today for how to not miss the point. Three mealtime parables, all building on each other. Three of them about missing the point. Three of them about wanting to make sure you don't miss the meal. Three of them all having dramatic reversals, all three parables. Number one, Jesus is telling us, don't miss seeing yourself rightly. That's the point, first point. Don't miss seeing yourself rightly. Look at verse 7. Now, he told the parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down at the place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. When you're invited, go and, and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. So the point here isn't a lesson in mealtime etiquette. 
how to get ahead at a Jewish dinner party. No, that's, that's not the point. No, there's actually evidence that this was probably common wisdom of the day. Jesus wasn't the, the first one to, to make a point like this. Uh, at the, uh, at the a feast, you can picture uh, the, the place closest to the host was a place of honor. The place at the end of the table was of a place of less honor, similar to a wedding reception today. In their culture, honor would have been significant. So to be by the host where all the action was happening was to be viewed as having respect. And everyone knows that it would be embarrassing if you chose to sit there and then asserted your own reputation, your own standing, just to then be moved to the end of the table. Everyone knows that it's better to have the host call you up and make a scene showing that you're actually far more honorable than everyone realized. Better to start low and be raised up than to give yourself honor and be set down. What is Jesus getting at here? Why this lesson in mealtime etiquette? Friends, the point is the disposition of your heart. Don't miss seeing yourself rightly. You see, one of the telltale signs that you've actually come into contact with the living God, one of the signs that your heart has been galvanized by the truth of the gospel, and that you've applied it to yourself, is that you humble yourself. Those who in Christ see Christ rightly understand their own unworthiness. But not the Pharisees. No, the Pharisees, they, they clamor for the front seats. They, they think they're morally good. They think they've cleaned themselves up, that they're better than everyone else. They go to the best seats thinking that they actually deserve them. You know, I, I think our culture today probably does this too, doesn't it? Assert yourself. Believe in yourself. Be put yourself forward. You deserve this. But a heart of humility, and, and that word humility literally means lowliness, is a central defining disposition of someone who believes the gospel. This is why Jesus drops verse 11 on them. Look at verse 11. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But he who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus isn't just talking about a meal here. No, in the end, those who receive in the gospel and see their own unworthiness and embrace their own unworthiness, in the end, those are the ones who will receive the glory of the gospel and all that it entails. So let me ask you today, church, is this humility the disposition of your heart? Or how isn't it? I assume there's ways for all of us that we just aren't fully humble as we ought to be. Take a moment and apply this to yourself. Do, in what ways do you seek to take honor for yourself? In what ways should you work to be giving others the place of honor? Let me just give you some examples. When you're out in public, do you fight for the first place in line at the grocery store? What's the disposition of your heart? All right, let me get real personal. When you're in traffic and someone's merging on you, do you pull right up to the bumper in front of you? You know what I mean. Just, like, don't look out your window. Don't make eye contact. You don't see them. Just keep focused forward. Who's first place in your world? 
Fathers, when you enter the home, is your disposition that you are the king of the castle? That everyone must serve you because you're home. Spouses, as you work together in your homes, do you work to outdo one another in showing honor? Or, or teens here today, here's one. Do you fight for the front seat of the car with your sibling? Or do you happily give it up to your brother or sister? I call shotgun for you. We know, we laugh because we know it's true that our hearts aren't this way. I'm, I'm just trying to pull a thread to say the disposition of a heart that has interacted with the gospel knows that they are not first. When you come to church on Sunday morning and you enter this room, is the disposition of your heart that you ought not be first here. Just one practical application of that for our church is if you come into this service uh, and you're here on time, move to the front center seats. Just move away from the aisle, the seats that everyone loves, and, and let the aisle seats be for those who come in late or those who have children or those who are leading the service. Just kind of move into the middle, let others be first with the best seats. And friends, I'm merely trying to illustrate the disposition of a heart that, that knows that I'm not first. All the examples I give are just, gave are just fruits of that heart. Jesus is telling us, don't miss seeing yourself rightly. Number two, Jesus is saying to us and the Pharisees, don't miss seeing others rightly. Now, to, to catch the weight of this, just go back and remember the scene that we're watching unfold before us. Jesus was invited to dinner. He's a guest in the house of this man sitting enjoying a meal. And notice, he's so honest that he's not afraid to even critique his host. I wonder if you can just feel the awkwardness of the scene. I wonder what kind of silence must have just fallen over the room as Jesus said these words to his host and probably what was a, a room full of rich men. Verse 12, he said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will re be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Notice Jesus is explaining exactly what he's been doing throughout this entire book. Exactly what the, the Pharisees have been missing. It's exactly what he did a moment ago with the man with dropsy. Jesus is constantly inviting in those who can't pay him back. It's incredibly countercultural. Just to be clear, I don't think verse 12 is saying that you can't spend time with your friends and family. I think Jesus is trying to prove a point. He's trying to make the point that our tendency, your tendency, is to trade in social capital. We invite others who could invite us back. It's the instinct of your heart. We're kind and welcoming others who it's easy to be kind and welcoming to. As one person commented, if, if we want to throw a party, we know that everyone invites the fun people to your house for the party. The exciting ones, the ones that you're going to get along with easily. Our hearts, your heart, if you're honest with yourself, it, our hearts are naturally transactional. 
But Jesus says when we do this, we're not viewing others rightly. We're not viewing the gospel rightly. You see, the gospel turns this on its head. The gospel is a story of Jesus throwing the biggest party ever with all of the least likely people, like you and me. The gospel is a story that says God doesn't save us because of what we offer to him. God doesn't save us because of our beauty. God doesn't save us because he's impressed with our status. No, God saves us and he gives us something to offer to him. God saves us and he gives us a beauty. God saves us and he gives us a status. It's God's love that makes us lovely. So, prove that you understand this by showing who you pull in. Who do you invite in? You know, one of the reasons that uh, the Bible is constantly talking about Christians giving to the poor and helping the poor is because it's, it's one of the clearest evidences of this. It's one of the clearest lab results that coursing through your blood is the gospel, is that Christians care for those that can give them nothing. In fact, Christians care for those who are rather pain to care for. So First Baptist, what about us? Do, do you view your relationships transactionally? Do you, do you wince and move away from the poor? Or do you pity, pray, and move toward the poor? When you see those around you who are hurting, who have complicated and difficult lives in your neighborhood or in your work or in this church, do you move away from those who are hurting with those problems or do you move toward them? Or what about friendships, even here in this room, even here at this church? Do you only gravitate towards those that are easy to spend time with? Or do you make it a point to know those who are new or those who come in here with relatively no social capital, those who are unknown, maybe those who are socially awkward or have less to offer you? Jesus is saying to the Pharisees and to us, don't miss seeing others rightly, inviting in others who are least deserving shows that we understand this gospel message. It shows that we understand our, our future eternal destination as well. Which leads us to our, our final point, the third section of the text, is this parable of the wedding feast. Number three, don't miss seeing yourself. Don't, we, don't miss seeing Christ rightly. Number three, don't miss seeing Christ rightly. This final section uh, of chapter 14, verse 15 and following, uh, begins with someone at the meal calling out and redirecting the conversation. Look at verse 15. When one of those recl who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, blessed is everyone who will eat in the kingdom of God. Now, maybe this man was feeling the awkwardness of Jesus repeatedly telling these mealtime lessons at the table of this Pharisee. Maybe the man is trying to shift the attention of the conversation to the kingdom of God, to the future reality of a coming eternal meal with God, this banquet that will be in heaven. Well, this image mentioned is one that would have been significant for the original hearers. Even earlier in our service today, perhaps you heard Pastor Caleb uh, call us into worship by quoting from Isaiah of this future banquet 
that is promised in the kingdom of God for those who are of us who are in Christ. This feast, it's, it's the, the great joy that we Christians await. It's the opposite of everything we studied last week, being separated from Christ. It's the, the pleasure and joy that comes for those who are waiting for Christ and then find him. So this man was right. Blessed is everyone who makes it there. Well, Jesus essentially then says, if you want to talk about that meal, let me talk about that meal. Look what he says in verse 16. He said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field. I must go and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I bought five yoke of oxen, and I uh, go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. Jesus compares the kingdom, the kingdom of God, to a great banquet. And notice, many are invited. Friends, the offer of enjoying Christ is a free offer that we ought to give to all. We as the servants get to offer it widely. But not all will come. Just imagine this scene that Jesus is trying to put in our mind's eye. Can you imagine it? There's a, a great feast being prepared. Invitations being sent out. Preparations happening in the home. It comes time to eat and rejoice together. And all of the guests all offer excuses. The text says they all alike began to make excuses, which that language just infers that they all at once said no at the same time. Did you see the excuses they offered? Verse 18, uh, the first says he's bought a field and he needs to go out and see it. What a horrible excuse. In this agrarian culture, no one would buy a field sight unseen. And if you did, the field is not going anywhere. You could easily go and survey your land another day. Or verse 19, the second bought oxen and need to examine them. Again, uh, the poor excuse for an unlikely scenario. If you're buying oxen, you've seen them. If you haven't, you can wait another day. Verse 20, the third man merely says he's married and can't. He doesn't even ask to be excused. He just currently says he can't come. The point is that all of them dishonor the importance of the invitation by their relatively poor excuses. Simply put, they just don't want to come. But I wonder, I wonder if they fooled themselves as well. I wonder if they thought they wanted to come. I wonder if they really thought that maybe they would come a different day. I wonder if it felt right to them, the reasons that they gave for why they couldn't show up. Poor excuse is a scary thing, isn't it? In our minds, excuses work like distracting smoke screens. It's a way of deflecting the truth. It's an obstacle in your path to honesty. The truth is, something else is more important. Now, most directly, I just need to say, I think Jesus is firstly speaking about the Jewish nation in this parable. God's people would reject God's invitation and the Messiah that was there. But I think there's application for us today as well. 
Friends, the warning here of procrastination and excuses when the invitation to the grand banquet of the masters at hand, this is a sober warning. Please notice these excuses as well are not sinful in and of themselves. Did you see that? These aren't heinous crimes that these men are committing. None of them were outright violating the law of God. That's perhaps what makes them incredibly frightening to me. These men missed enjoying the banquet because of innocent secondary priorities. Things they were allowed to do and should do, but just had them misplaced. J.C. Rowell says it this way. He says, it is not open immorality that fills hell. It is excessive attention to things which in themselves are lawful. It is not avowed dislike to the gospel, which is so much to be feared. It is that procrastinating, excuse-making spirit, which is always ready with a reason why Christ cannot be served today. Let the words of our Lord on this subject sink down into our hearts. Infidelity and immorality, no doubt, slay their thousands. But decent, plausible, well-smooth-spoken excuses slay their ten thousands. So if there's an excuse in your life this week, what would it be? If there's something that would keep you from just running on that road to that banquet with all of the the power and the strength and the might that you could, with all the focus and resolve to go to that banquet, what is it? What's your excuse? What would you make? I'm guessing, for most of us, it's probably not an evil thing. Maybe for some of us it is. I'm also guessing for most of us it's not that you bought five oxen this week. So you have to apply. You have to think about your life. What is it for you? Uh, This would be just such a great conversation with your family over lunch today. Fathers, just take the initiative to to lead a good conversation over lunch. Or if you go out to eat, just strike up a conversation. Say, what could be an excuse to, to turn you away from the road to this coming banquet? I suspect that in the final day, we will be shocked at just how many acceptable things drowned out a greater work of God in our lives, in in my life. I suspect that we will be shocked at the power of Netflix and Instagram and Facebook and endless TikTok reels. I suspect, suspect that we will be shocked at how many hours we just freely handed over to professional sports or mere amusements of this world. I'm not saying these things are wrong. I'm saying that we can use them to miss the point like the Pharisees did. We can make excuses for not prioritizing what ought not be missed. C.S. Lewis famously wrote it this way. He said, we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition, when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. This parable says 
don't miss seeing Christ rightly. Well, how will the master respond to these excuses, these being put into secondary place, second priority? Verse 21, so the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry. Of course he became angry. His honor, his banquet, his rightful place of authority, his rightful place of joy that he was inviting others into was being relegated to a distant second. God is jealous for the priority in your life. Verse 21, he said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and lame and blind. And the servant said, sir, what you've commanded has been done and still there's room. And the master said to the servant, go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of these men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Christ ends his parable. There's so much more to be explored here. There's even this language of the poor. You'll probably notice the same four categories where the groups mentioned there in verse 21 were the same that were mentioned to us back in thir- verse 13. Christ is showing us the structural values of his kingdom. But he'll teach more about the poor in the coming chapters. Today, we're short on time. Let let me close with just two observations for the way that this passage exhorts us to not miss Christ. First, I understand that the primary uh, uh, fulfillment of this parable happened when the gospel went out to the Gentiles. No longer would God wait only for Israel. Instead, he would send messengers to the streets and the lanes of the city. He would bring in us. Us. Those who are spiritually poor and unable on our own to come in. So if you're here today and still learning about this gospel message, let me tell you what you need to know. Christ is inviting you in. He says, come. You're invited in. It's not a meal that you can get to by your own merit. This isn't bring your own lunchbox. No, come enjoy his banquet. His making it for you. God has created you to know him. But you and I have turned from him in our sin. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ lived, died, and rose from the death from death so that we could be invited into his presence that we could taste of glorious things that we know we're created for you know you were created for more than this to enjoy the delicacies of Christ himself and he says come in I'm inviting you in believe in Jesus Christ today turn your eyes to him as Christians here Keep your eyes focused on Christ. He's welcomed you in. Do do you realize that you're the spiritually poor person in the room? You're the one that's been compelled by his grace to come in? Trust Christ, and you will never regret tasting of his banquet. Don't miss seeing Christ rightly. But a second, final observation. Commentators together uh, note correctly that there's an overwhelming thrust to this parable. 
He's sitting there in that living room that day, eating this meal with these Pharisees. Jesus is willing to even awkwardly get their attention. Like, he's willing to cause a scene. He's willing to upend the meal, to make a point. And his emphasis is that there is a banquet and that the party will not be delayed. The master has invited. Yes, excuses have been made, so others had to be invited in, and then even others still. But the point is that the party's happening. He's still going to hold the banquet. There's a banquet. That's what's ahead, and it's coming. That's what Jesus is saying. One scholar says it this way. He says, the celebration comes regardless of the invitee's response. One can accept or reject the invitation, but in either way, the party is coming. And it will not be rescheduled or postponed. Oh, beloved, this is good news. What kind of God is this that invites us into his banquet of supreme and eternal joy? Don't you want to be there? You know, there's this place uh, in John's gospel where John is explaining for us the the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Uh, and John chapter 2, John starts into these seven signs that he wants to highlight to, that are signs pointing to who Jesus is so that his readers can figure out what is Jesus all about. Tim Keller's sermon here on John 2 is so helpful if you go listen to it. Do, do you know what Jesus kicks off his ministry with? Do you, do you know what the first sign to show what he's all about is? He attends a wedding feast which runs out of wine. And John says the first sign that Jesus does is to make water into wine. He keeps the party going. He proves that he knows how to throw a good party. And he foreshadows, oh, the greatest of all banquets. It's coming. It's coming. Don't you want to be in that house tasting of his banquet? then let me invite you, turn your eyes on Jesus this week. Don't miss seeing Christ rightly. And then one day you'll experience what the prophet Isaiah tells us when he writes this. He says, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a rich feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, a rich of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. And he will swallow up on that mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away all tears from their faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Let's pray. Oh God, give us eyes of faith to look forward to that coming banquet, that feast that awaits all those who are in Christ. Oh God, let us see Christ and long for him. Oh God, protect our church against dying the death of poor, lame, secondary priorities. 
May we be consumed with Christ. May he have all of our affection this week. May we enjoy the things of this world through our enjoyment of Christ. May you be glorified in your people this week. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.